This morning, the scripture reading comes from Matthew 26, 17 through 30. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want, to, where do you want us to make preparations to eat your Passover? He replied, go into the city to a certain man and tell him, the teacher says my appointed time is near. I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him one after another, Surely you don't mean me, Lord. Jesus replied, The one who has dipped his hand in the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go, just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who that would betray him, said, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. Jesus said, You have said so. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is, my, this is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine until now on the day that when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. I know it's, it's only September, but trust me, the Christmas season will be here before you know it. Time flies. And let's just imagine for a minute that this year I decided when it's time to, to celebrate Christmas around here, I wanted to do some things differently. I want to make some serious changes to the way we celebrate Christmas. You know, everybody does a tree. So what if I said this year, I'm going to tell the gals who usually decorate around here, I don't want to do a tree this year. We're going to start with a nice fountain because everybody does trees and we want to do something different. And instead of a nativity scene, I want to do more like a garden gnome theme. I wanted to have some garden gnomes, maybe playing shuffleboard or something like that, do something different. And instead of like an advent wreath with candles by the fountain, we could put a nice bird bath by the fountain and we could put different colored birds around the bird bath. Wouldn't that be nice? And then, even though like Christmas Eve is usually our, like our biggest um, service of the year, everybody does Christmas Eve. So this year, instead of meeting on the evening of the 24th and having a service around the Christmas story, I want to do something on the afternoon of the 22nd, and we're going to read the book of Leviticus together instead of the Christmas story. Now, if that was my plan, what would you think? Which some of you would, would think that I have lost my mind. Some of the rest of you would give me the benefit of the doubt for a while, thinking I was maybe going to do something profound, and then when you figured out that that wasn't true, then you would think I had lost my mind. Because you don't mess with Christmas, right? Now, as weird as that would be, 
I mean, if I did Christmas fountains and bird baths and garden gnomes and Leviticus, I don't think that holds a candle to what the disciples experienced in the passage that Chad just read for us. We have come to what's usually called the upper room passage of the book of Matthew or the Lord's Supper passage. And it's very familiar to us, isn't it? We, we recite parts of that passage once a month when we celebrate communion. So nothing seems terribly strange to us. Well, what I want to ask you to do this morning as we study through that passage is try to put yourself in the disciples' shoes. Because what Jesus led them through that night would have seemed bizarre to them. They were going into that upper room to celebrate Passover. Passover had been being celebrated in largely the same way for hundreds and thousands of years. They'd all been through a Passover celebration. It was the most important meal and remembrance on the Jewish calendar. And they were going to go celebrate Passover together like a family with Jesus playing the role of the head of the household. But when they got up in that room, Jesus led them through a very different kind of Passover that would have weirded them out, freaked them out, scared them a little bit. It seems normal to us. It's old hat to us. But it was not for them. The beginning of of our passage, we learn that Matthew tells us in his own way, it's on the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, what we learn there is it's Thursday of the last week of Jesus' life. It is early in the day. Uh, Jesus will be killed the following day. It's the Passover there in Jerusalem, which during the Passover celebration, the first of which, first of the part of it's called the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the meal. Jerusalem would have swollen to, to multiple times its normal size, so there's no place to stay, there's no rooms to rent. And so the disciples, because they want to celebrate Passover, like every other good Jew, they come to Jesus in verse 17 and ask, where do you want us to get things ready? We can get a Passover meal ready, Lord. We just need to know where. And Matthew gives us a, an abbreviated version of Jesus' full answer. If we read in the other Gospels this story, Jesus says, tell you what, you go in to Jerusalem, you're going to find a guy carrying water, which would have been unusual because that was traditionally women's work. You follow him, he's going to go in, you say this, he'll say that. Yeah, this whole thing's set up. Matthew, yada, yada is all that stuff. You know what I mean? Yada, yada, yada. One thing led to another, and here we are. Matthew just says this. Jesus told us, go into the city to a, certain, to a certain man. He just doesn't tell us how Jesus told them they would know the certain man when they saw him. When they, when they saw him. So go find that guy and tell him your, the teacher's his time is, is ready, and he wants to celebrate Passover at your house. Verse 19 tells us that's what the disciples did. 
So in verse 19, they prepared the Passover. That's what lets us know they thought this was going to be the normal Passover. Passover is the celebration of God leading the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt during the Exodus in the days of Moses. There's, a, there's like a script for Passover that would have been followed. It's very traditional. Traditional dishes, traditional readings and recitations, uh, traditional songs, uh, traditional, what we would kind of call toasts. That's what they set up. That's what they think they're going to get. And verse 20 tells us that evening came. Jesus took his place at the head of the table. We learned they, they are eating. So some of this evening got underway in the normal manner. And then the first recorded words, the first words we have in the Gospels, um, in Matthew anyway, at, during that evening. The disciples are assuming Jesus will begin the script. They're going to hear the Passover story. They're going to hear traditional readings. And instead, while they're eating, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, one of you is going to betray me. Now this is an all-time record scratch moment. Remember in old sitcoms, somebody would walk into a room and say something and you'd hear the sound uh, effect of the record needle scratching across the record. Parents, you can explain to your kids what needles and records are later. Right? And the music would stop. That's, this is an all-time mood killer. This is completely inappropriate. I know all of our families have conflict and bitterness, and uh, skeletons in the closet. And there are, there are, there's a time and a place to have those conversations. For us, you don't talk about those things at Christmas dinner, right? You make sure we can get through this meal without talking again about why you are mad at me and I am mad at you. Don't we do that? During the Passover, Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. That's not the way the script goes. It's no wonder in verse 22, there's a Greek word, um, lapuminoi, which means it's, it's a word for severe mental and emotional distress. And that's what this announcement does to the disciples. They go from celebration to severe mental and emotional distress. And they begin to ask Jesus one at a time, surely not I, Lord. It's not me, right, Lord? In verse 23, Jesus collectively answers that question. He says, the one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. Now again, take your familiarity of this story out of your head for a while that verse right there on the screen is not Jesus' way to pinpoint and point the finger at Judas. It's not. It's not like Judas is the only one who had dipped into the common bowls of the Passover meal with Jesus. They all had. That's the way Passover works. This is just Jesus said, they're like, no way, not me. I couldn't do it. Well, I couldn't either. It's not me, is it, Lord? And Jesus just reiterates, it's one of you. Passover is a family affair. And this is Jesus' way of saying, 
one of you that's as close to me as anyone in the world is who I'm talking about. If that's not inappropriate and uncomfortable enough, Jesus throws this in next. The son of man, that's him. Jesus says, I'm going to go as it's written about me, but woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would be better for him if he had never been born. Right, so they're at, for us, think of it as like Christmas dinner, Easter dinner, Thanksgiving dinner. Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. Oh, it can't be me. It can't be me. Yep, it's one of you. And I'll tell you another thing. It would be better for that person if he had never been born because he is going to burn in hell for all of eternity. Hey, can you pass the gravy? Can I get that? You catch how bizarre that would have been during that meal. Now, in my mind's eye, I picture Judas reclining there on the long couch-like thing that they used. And I imagine him sweating bullets. Because we've been reading this story as we've gone along. We know Judas has already sold Jesus out to the authorities. He has promised to deliver Jesus at the proper time. That proper time will be later that night. He's got the money on him, presumably. And so when Jesus starts saying, one of you is going to betray me. Judas, if you know the story, the telltale heart, that's what this reminds me of. I imagine Judas, he's sweating bullets. His heart is beating in his chest. He knows Jesus is talking about him. I assume he feels like everyone else can tell this is me too. I look guilty. And I think maybe everyone else has been saying, oh, it's not me, Lord. Couldn't be me, Lord. And Judas has just been sitting there, laying there with his, with his mouth open. And he thinks, oh, I look guilty because I'm not saying anything. So Judas says, well, surely not I, rabbi. Do you see the difference in how Judas asks his question and the other disciples ask their question? What do the other disciples call him? Lord. Surely not I, Lord. Judas says, surely not I, rabbi. Respectful, but not the same. If you go back through the book of Matthew, and highlight or underline every time somebody calls Jesus teacher or rabbi, you'll find out usually it's not the good guys. Usually it's not Jesus' friends. And I think that's why Jesus, crafty with words like he is, says next what he says next. Jesus says, surely not I, rabbi. And Jesus says, you have said it yourself. That's a way for Jesus to say, yes, it is you, without saying, yes, it is you. I think Jesus and Judas know what Jesus means. Jesus means you have just identified yourself as less than my disciple. You know the answer to that question, you devil. You are holding the money right now. But the rest of the disciples, they just think Jesus is agreeing with Judas. It's not me, Rabbi. Oh, you've said it yourself. You... Now that's how this most special of family meals began. Aren't we off to a good start in this Passover meal? Things are going swimmingly. Not exactly. And I think for just one second, for just a second, in verse 26, 
I think the disciples thought Jesus was maybe going to get the evening back on track. Because in verse 26, we read that while they were eating, Jesus took bread and gave thanks. Unleavened bread uh, played a very valuable role in the Passover. It had for thousands of years. Right? The Israelites had, were told by God, you're going to be leaving in a hurry. Don't put any yeast in your bread. It won't have time to rise. So you just make unleavened bread to, to take with you. And part of the ceremony and the tradition of Passover revolved around unleavened bread. So after all that weirdness, and one of you is going to betray me, and he's going to, it'd be better for him to have never been born. For a split second, I think the disciples think, maybe we can salvage this evening after all. As Jesus goes back to the script, he takes unleavened bread that would have been there because the disciples prepared a traditional Passover. He takes it and he gives thanks and breaks it and that's all completely normal. And then he says this, take, eat, this is my body. Again, you have to remove your familiarity with this story. The disciples are expecting part of the Passover story. Instead, they, they get, I want you to eat my body. What? Right? Why? The next, it gets weirder. Next, um, Passover involved the use of several different cups. Um, there was a series of kind of what we would call toasts, really, that go on a Passover meal. And everybody had their own cups. And there would be, there'd be a story behind this one, and you'd pour, pour wine, and you'd basically have a commemorative toast to that aspect of the Passover story. Later on, there would be another one. But everybody got their own cup at their own place. But after the bread thing, Jesus takes just his cup, and he gives thanks, and he gave it to them, and then he says this, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood. It's the blood of the covenant that's poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I think he has them drink first, and then he tells them, you just drank my blood. All right? Again, let's try to put this in, let's pretend you don't know this story. Uh, you come over to our house for Thanksgiving dinner, right? And uh, we have a toast. And after you drink, I look at you with a straight face and say, you just drank my blood. How do you react, right? Are you looking for the exits at that point or what? It's bizarre. And Jews couldn't eat anything with the blood in it, even meat, so that's weird. Then Jesus says this about this, what they just drank that they can taste is wine, but says it symbolizes his blood. He says it's the blood of the covenant that's poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I don't know if the disciples would have caught this either because they would have been so freaked out by the, the entire evening. But here's what Jesus just said. A covenant is a solemn agreement between two parties, or at least two parties. A marriage is a covenant, right? It, there's a ceremony. Um, 
You walk down the aisle, you stand up in front of witnesses, and you go through a ceremony where you go public with your intention to be faithful to this one person, right? It's a covenant. In the Bible, in the Old Testament, there's a series of covenants, and it's, it's normal for blood to be involved in the cutting of a, of a covenant. God did this when he made a covenant with Abraham. When, when God established the law, um, that was a covenant between God and the people of Israel. And what Moses did, when the people of Israel agreed to be a part of this covenant, the law, Moses took the blood of an animal and he like flipped it out on the people. Okay, the, the idea behind uh, killing an animals during a, during a covenant ceremony is sort of this. Um, first of all, we're not doing this flippantly. I can't say later, oh, I didn't really mean that. Oh, I just, I didn't know what I was saying. It's very serious. A lot of times the animals were, were put in two halves and the center aisle would be walking between the halves of, of the dead carcass. And the idea was, may that happen to me if I go back on, on my part of the covenant. So blood for a covenant is normal. What's not normal is that human blood would be part of a covenant. The old covenant, and I'm going to show you in a minute why it's called, where we get the name old covenant. The covenant of the law didn't work very good. Not because there's something wrong with the law. It's perfect. There's something wrong with us. We're not. We can't keep the law. And so God knew people needed a different covenant or a new covenant. Here's the, we can see pieces of the new covenant in a few places, but I want to show you this one. Jeremiah 31, if you can read that, I know it's kind of small. Jeremiah 31, this is God speaking to Israel. And God says this, Indeed, a time is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a what? A new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. It will not be like the old covenant, that I made with their ancestors when I delivered them from Egypt. It's not like the law. For they violated that covenant, even though I was like a faithful husband to them, says the Lord. But I will make a new covenant with the whole nation of Israel after I plant them back in the land, says the Lord. I'm going to put my law within them. I'm going to write my law on their hearts and their minds. I will be their God. They will be my people. In the New Covenant, verse 34, people will no longer need to teach their neighbors and relatives to know me. For all of them, from the least important to the most important, will know me, says the Lord. And I will forgive their sin, and I will no longer call to mind the wrong they have done. That's the New Covenant. The Old Covenant was this. Here's the rules. You agree to follow them. I agree not to kick you out of the land and kill you forever. That doesn't work so good. Because Israel couldn't keep the law. And you or I, if we were under that, we couldn't keep it either. So God had always promised, I'm going to make a new covenant. Jesus said today, he started, the new covenant was begun when he became the animal that was killed. We are still waiting on most of the new covenant to happen. It has not been fulfilled. Here's how we know that. 
When the new covenant is fulfilled, every, nobody's going to need to teach anybody to know God. Are there people that don't know God? Yes, lots of people. Um, everybody's just going to know me. The, the, the law of God isn't going to be on tablets or in Bibles. It's going to be written on our hearts and minds, and we're just going to do everything that's written in the law. How are we doing on that? Are we obedient to everything that's written in the law? No. One day, if you know Jesus as your Savior, you will be. And everybody will know God and have the same law written on their hearts, and we're all going to be perfect. We're still waiting on that. It's not been fulfilled, but it has been begun. It's been opened. It's been initiated. And it was initiated. Jesus predicted it in the upper room, and it was initiated the next day on the cross. When Jesus became the, the lamb that was slain to establish the new covenant, and we get the benefits of the new covenant, some of them, even though we don't get the whole thing. And here's what we get. The forgiveness of sin. And God no longer calls to mind the wrong that we have done. Now, the disciples didn't understand a word of what I just <laughs> explained to you. They didn't get any of that, I don't think. Later, this will make sense. After Jesus is killed, after he raises again from the dead and comes and talks to them and think that the pieces start to, uh, to fall into place and they realize what Jesus was doing in the upper room was not celebrating Passover. He was starting something brand new. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we're not celebrating Passover. We're celebrating what Jesus did for us, the beginning of the new covenant, how we get our sins forgiven. But the disciples understood none of that at the time. I want to make sure we understand what Jesus was doing. So the rest of our time is going to basically be a communion service, the Lord's Supper. I want to go through the elements and talk about them a little more, uh, a little more in detail. The bread that Jesus held up. What did the bread symbolize? His body. He said, this is my body. It was a symbol of his body. His body was still there. It didn't become his body, but it was a symbol of his body. And the bread did not symbolize how Jesus died. In other words, Jesus gave thanks with the bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body. And then he handed out little pieces of the bread to his friends. Right? That was not to show the manner in which Jesus died. In other words, he doesn't break the bread to let his disciples know, this is what they're going to do to me. I'm going to really be hurt bad. That's not what it symbolizes. because Jesus wasn't dismembered. His bones weren't even broken. He was disfigured. He was beat terribly till the blood poured from every area of his body. The Bible tells us he was unrecognizable. But Jesus didn't break the bread and hand little pieces out as a demonstration of what was going to happen to him. The bread 
was used to symbolize not how he would die, but why. And here's what I mean. Jesus knows what's ahead of him. He knows what his disciples are going to do later that evening. You know what the very next words Jesus will say after, after the communion service is? His very next words are, this night all of you will run away because of me. He knows one's going to betray him. They're all going to run out on him. One's going to deny he even knew Jesus. But before any of that happens, Jesus wants to make sure he vividly demonstrates why he's going to allow to happen what's going to happen. He does it this way. This is my body. It's broken for who? For you. What happened was for you. And Peter, it's for you. And Nathaniel, it's for you. Right? Jesus knew what was coming. And if Jesus were here to administer communion to us today, he would want you to, to make sure that you knew it was not just for his 11 friends minus Judas. And yet it's for you. It's why he told us as a church to do this together. It's just like Jesus, I think he would want us to, to understand this this way. After he left that room, and you know, um, I was betrayed by one of my friends. I allowed myself to be arrested and carried away. John, when I did that, I did that for you. After they arrested me, they put me on trial. At night, in the high priest's house, and this high priest who's supposed to be my representative on earth. He lied about me. He, he, he made up charges and paid false witnesses to testify against me, and I let that happen. I let that happen. Liz, I did that for you. After my trial, they called the, the Romans in to, when, when Pilate allowed the, the false charges to stand, the Roman soldiers took me away, they put a, put a crown of thorns on my head and put a purple robe around my shoulders. They spat on me. They made fun of me for claiming to be a king. I let that happen. Bradley, I did that for you. And we walked through the streets. They led me through the streets of Jerusalem. Naked beaten to a bloody mess. I just want you to know, Zoe, I did that for you. They took me out on that hill. They drove nails in my hands and my feet. They hung me on a pole naked to die. Jeff, I did that for you. Do you get it? That's what the bread is about. So that in that room, everyone, everyone there, you know, bread is for always, it's been for eons, it was what sustained people. It was the staple of the diet. It's what people existed because of in some sense. And Jesus wanted to make sure that my body will sustain you. What I do for you 
It wasn't an accident. I would die so that you would live. And he wanted to make sure everybody had a little piece in their hand so that they would know that Jesus did this for me and for you. So I'm going to pray and I'm going to ask the guys to come forward and uh, we'll share in the bread. And we'll wait till everybody has their own little piece of symbolizing what Jesus did for them. And we'll share it together. Heavenly Father and our Lord Jesus, thank you for instituting this very simple meal where we remind ourselves what you did. And not just what you did, but why you did it. Thank you for loving us enough, Lord Jesus, to go to the cross, to give up your body, to be humiliated and spat upon and crucified and killed for me, for us. And remind us of that as we remember you. In Jesus' name, amen. What you're holding is a symbol. We don't teach that that I have turned this into anything besides matzah, bread. It's a very important symbol. It it doesn't do anything for us when when we put it inside of us. It's to remind us why Jesus did what he did. It wasn't an accident. He wasn't outwitted. He wasn't outsmarted. He wasn't overpowered. He gave his body to be brutalized and killed for you. He said, as often as we do this, do this in remembrance of him. Now the cup that Jesus picked up next. This may be a little easier to confuse. I'm going to be clear about what we drink to and what we don't drink to when we celebrate communion. When, uh, when Jesus leaves that upper room and they go out across the Kidron Valley and into the Mount of Olives into a place called Gethsemane, Jesus will fall to the ground and he will ask his father something about a cup. Do you remember what he asks? He'll say, Daddy, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. I don't want to drink it. On Gethsemane, the cup Jesus referred to was the cup full of God's wrath. In the Old Testament, a cup was the plans God had for someone. And it's like for all of human history, God had been storing up and storing up and storing up the wrath that the sins of the world, past, present, and future, would deserve. And Jesus knew when he went to the cross, what would be happening is God would pour out the full cup of his wrath on Jesus. 
He would literally be punished for every sin that had ever been sinned. And he called that a cup. Let that cup pass from me. Now, the evening before in the upper room, he filled up his cup and he held up his cup. First, I want you to notice what's the first thing Jesus did when he held up that cup? He gave thanks for it. Who can give thanks from having the full wrath of God poured out on you? And here's where it gets more confusing. He passed that cup around and he asked all of his friends to take a drink out of his cup. Was he sharing the wrath of God? Did he want, Derek, I want you to taste just a little bit of the wrath of God. I know it's going to be poured out on me, but I want you to taste yours. Rand, I want you to taste your share. And Dennis, I want to make sure that you taste your share too. Is that what that was? No. Don't get the two cups confused. What Jesus says in the upper room when he picks up that cup, he said, he gave thanks. He gave it to them. Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood, the blood of the covenant that's poured out for the forgiveness of sins. A lot of times, communion is treated like our version of the confessional booth. This is the time where we try to get really sorry for all of our sins, right? We don't drink to the wrath of God. We certainly don't drink to our sins. What we drink is the symbol of the new covenant. When, that, when Jesus drank the full cup of God's wrath, he did that so that you and I would never have to taste it. When that cup was poured out on Jesus, and I believe that started in Gethsemane and lasted till he died, the blood that was shed filled a different cup, metaphorically speaking. It's the blood of the new covenant. It's the symbol that his blood was shed so that mine doesn't have to be. He was punished so that I don't have to be. And when we drink this cup, here's what we're drinking. What we're doing is we're, we're visualizing I am putting the new covenant inside of me. I'd like there, there might be a ceremony between God and Abraham where God kills animals and puts them on different sides and, and God walked in between the pieces. If you know that story, that was the ceremony saying this is the covenant that we're agreeing to. When we drink the cup, what we're doing is we're saying this is the covenant I belong to. I'm not under the law. I'm no longer under the wrath of God because he went under the wrath of God. He drank the cup of God's wrath. I get to drink the cup of the new covenant that was poured out for the forgiveness of sins. So when we drink this cup, it is a celebration. We remember what he endured and we celebrate the forgiveness of sin that we get to enjoy. Lord Jesus, just as you lifted up your cup and gave thanks, we want to give you thanks for putting yourself in the crosshairs of the wrath of God. And we know we deserved to be in those crosshairs.
but you endured the Father's wrath that we might be forgiven of sins. And as we drink uh, these little cups of the fruit of the vine, we remind ourselves what we trust in, the blood of Jesus Christ shed on a cross, poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Help us remember that as the, as the cups come around in Jesus' name. Amen. gave thanks not for the wrath that would be poured out on him the next day he gave thanks that that wrath would not be poured out on you and on me and he asked that as often as we do this we would remember him the passage ends with two things here's how the Lord's Supper ends it didn't end with the wine it ended with a promise and a song. So that's how we're going to end this morning. First, the promise. Jesus told his friends that he knew we're going to run out on him, betray him, deny him, all that stuff, abandon him. He said, I tell you from now on, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine. By the way, what did they drink? Did they drink actual blood? Or did they drink the fruit of the vine? They drank the fruit of the vine. What do we call that? Wine. And he says, I'm not going to drink wine again until I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. There's the promise. Here's what's so great about remembering this meal. It reminds us we just do this one temporarily. Once a month, we get together, we do this picture of the gospel, we remind ourselves how we're saved, why we're saved, and we also look forward to someday, I'm going to sit across the table from Jesus. And I'm going to share a meal with him. That new covenant that we read about in Jeremiah, it's not just the forgiveness of sins. Someday, we're going to be perfect. We're all going to know God perfectly. His law is going to be a part of my heart and my mind. And I'm not going to have any more regret. I'm not going to beat myself up anymore. I'm not going to struggle. I'm going to be who he wanted me to be always. Will God keep that promise? He wouldn't have killed his son to ratify that covenant if he didn't plan to keep that promise. You're going to be, if you believe in Jesus, if you believe in what was symbolized in that meal, he will perfect you and he will share a family meal with you. Amen? And then in verse 30, man, don't pass this one by. After that was done, when Jesus heads out that door, you know what he's heading out there for, for his friends to abandon him and to him to be tortured and killed. And what does he do? Arm in arm with his friends, right before they scatter and leave him, they sing a hymn together. 
How could Jesus stand and sing with those guys? Because Jesus could see past the cross. He wanted his friends to remain his friends. They were his friends. And so are all those who believe in him. But he had to go swallow the wrath of God so that we could be his friends. That's what he's saying to you. So I'm going to ask our musicians to come back up and we are going to do what they did there. We are going to sing a hymn and we're not going to the Mount of Olives, but we're going to go out into the world after this. Pray with me. Father God, thank you so much again for the cross and for what is symbolized in this great meal. Thank you, Lord, for giving up your body and shedding your blood for us, for the forgiveness of our sins. Thank you for swallowing the wrath of God so that we may boldly approach your throne. And we look forward to with you one day sharing a meal of friendship and fellowship after you have perfected us. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Stand and finish with us.